Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns. So together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends and I have a new friend, Dr. Ben Reeves. He is right up my alley. He's an award-winning integrative medicine physician and leading expert in alternative medicine. And he offers a life-altering perspective on the attainment of optimal health by articulating the seven laws of healing and how to live in harmony with the body. We discuss his debut book titled, The Serpent and the Butterflies, The Seven Laws of Healing, and so much more. And welcome, Dr. Reeves. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate being here. It's great to be here. So I want to launch right into naturopathic. I come from a Western background. I'm a physical therapist. My dad was an orthopedic surgeon. One of my brothers is a psychiatrist. And I know in my mind what I think naturopathy is, but I, I'm sure I and many others would love to get more clarity on what is naturopathic medicine. Yeah, that's a great question. So naturopathic medicine was pioneered about 100 years ago here in the United States. And it basically involves applying the laws of healing using evidence-based medicine to help the body restore normal structure and function. In other words, to restore the body to health. And so it's a lot like integrative medicine, functional medicine, alternative medicine, Uh, However, it has its own unique body of texts and founders and so on. So when did you decide, first of all, that you wanted to be a doctor? Is that something that you always kind of was on that path? Like I know my dad was, I think he was like 11 years old when he knew he wanted to be a doctor and very specifically a surgeon. And I know that a lot of people who go into medicine have that early calling. Did you have that as well? I had the calling, but I didn't find naturopathic medicine until I was in my 20s. And I actually became a doctor in my early 30s. And so that, yeah, it's, it's, it was kind of a long time coming. I do have, like you, uh, doctors and nurses in my family. And I've been around conventional medicine a lot my entire life. I didn't even know naturopathic medicine existed. And once I found it, I was like, wow, this is amazing because it kind of brings together 
both worlds. Uh, I get to be a, a, an expert in natural medicine, in herbs, in nutrition, in physical medicine to some degree. And then I also get to be trained in the conventional sciences and the allopathic side of things as well. Being able to prescribe drugs, being able to diagnose and treat, and also being able to take insurance. Mm. Wow. So what is the path of naturopathic? Do you become an MD first and then you specialize? You know, it's, it's actually the exact same path that a medical doctor has to take. It's just that one has to go to naturopathic medical school. So you have to do undergraduate in the sciences and then prerequisites and then get accepted. And then it's a four to five year uh, medical, um, just, just like regular med school, four to five years. And then residencies after that. I'm so curious because I imagine taking an alternative route of any kind has, there's some reason for it beyond just like interest. Because I know, for instance, in the yoga world, I combined my physical therapy and yoga movement because I recognized that there wasn't enough inherent balance in the movement system of yoga. And there wasn't enough, in my opinion, functional anatomy going towards the balance. Like, again, like you were saying that, you know, not just going out and teaching something, but really understanding the layers underneath it. And even from a cellular level, attempting to find that homeostasis, that balance of both strength and suppleness, just like a cell itself. That spoke to me because again, of my own education and interest, but what things really came into play when you decided to go this path? I mean, did you have some kind of aha, like moment of seeing somebody else? Yeah, I actually did. At the time, back in, uh, I think it was around 2007, 2008, my partner, uh, she was basically diagnosed with a chronic disease and then it was resolved. And I said, you know, what happened to you? <laughs> and I watched it happen over a period of months. She went from being a couch potato, basically doing nothing for hours, not having any energy to even get up off the couch. And she went from that to just bouncing off the walls and at the time she was diagnosed with celiac disease by her naturopathic doctor. And no one else was able to figure it out. Uh, she'd been working on it for years. She had tried everything, gone to uh, dozens of practitioners, osteopaths, MDs, Chinese medicine doctors, you name it. And her naturopathic doctor helped her figure it out. And once I found out about that, I went and interviewed her naturopathic doctor and after about two or three hours, I had a pretty good sense that I wanted to pursue this path. Now, how is it, because it sounds like there's a lot more doctor involvement of questioning and investigating and critical thinking, how does that work with insurances? Like, when did they agree to, you know, give you some kind of reimbursement for that? Because I know in our modern medical model, it's quicker, faster, and more people because of, we know all the reasons, but how is it that insurance will reimburse for this? Yeah, it's only recognized in about half the states right now. So we're licensed yeah. in the, you know 20 some odd states and most of those have some form of insurance coverage. So it's different from state to state. We do have great coverage here in Oregon and it's kind of knowing the game. And, you know, obviously there's pros and cons to it. It's all about using it to the best you can. However, it's really not the end-all be-all. Right. So when you have someone come to your clinic, what is the kind of protocol? Do you do the same question and answer and really investigate? Do you serve as a primary physician for them? 
I do for quite a few of my patients, and we are recognized as primary care in Oregon, just like chiropractors as well are recognized as primary care here. I spend 75 minutes with patients at a new patient visit doing a full intake, a physical exam, and then you know, usually we'll order imaging or blood work uh, or some specialty labs. And then we'll do maybe a 30 to 45 minute follow-up a couple weeks later. And generally we'll get to the bottom of an issue within two or three sessions. We'll be able to figure out a root cause or two of you know, whatever's going on symptomatically for that person. And then we'll put together a, a customized plan that may involve some herbs, some nutrition, some vitamins, supplements, maybe some diet and lifestyle recommendations. I know it's probably hard to answer some of these questions, but if you were to kind of say your top three, what are the top three conditions, whether it's acute or chronic, that you see the most in this more modern day world? Yeah, I think probably the number one I see would be dysbiosis or SIBO, basically indigestion of the gut. Probably the number two would be diabetes. And number three would probably be hypertension. Mm, Yes. And so when you are giving them a protocol, do you go first to like herbs and supplements before you go to prescription or does it really, is it case by case? It's case by case. A lot of times patients will come to me and that, you know, they're already on two or three or more things, not getting them off right away. It's really meeting them where they're at. And then we'll run some labs because I'm all about data. We've got to see some data and maybe some specialty labs, functional medicine labs, And then I'm also trained in ways of assessing them in office that that a typical medical doctor wouldn't do necessarily, such as checking pulses, doing percussion on different organs, and so on. And and then I come up with kind of a comprehensive plan that's going to literally reverse whatever they've got going on. So that's the goal. It's to help reverse things or, or to improve them significantly. Yes. I think it's interesting you mentioned the gut because... I have been reading so much on the gut, as I'm sure anybody that's interested in health has. This gut health has become a huge topic. And it's like discovering new layers to it, literally, with each month, each year that's going on. How was that rooted in naturopathy to begin with? Like, I feel like other, you know, paths of medicine are are kind of catching up with probably what you and other alternative medicine sources were already seeing that the gut is so responsible for our immunity, for our mental health. You know, I didn't know until this year that a huge portion of serotonin is first produced in the gut. It's incredible. Yeah. It's interesting because my daughter and I both ended up having H. pylori, which I think is pretty common. And I didn't really have any particular symptoms that were overt that I knew about. They were kind of silent, like my thyroid was going kind of whack. And I go to an integrative doctor because I'm just such a fan because I don't want to just have somebody just look me over and say, oh, all your labs are normal. When in fact, it's all about relationships of the numbers. It's not just the hardcore numbers themselves. And it was just so fascinating how with my daughter, she had some other symptoms that were different in mind, but how many systems in the body are impacted by gut health? Now, if you were just, no one was complaining about anything, are there any supplements that you would like just say everybody should be taking this supplement to, you know, really keep that gut health the best? 
Yes. For me, it would be digestive bitters. And of course, I can't make recommendations here and because you know, I'm not diagnosing or treating anyone, right. but uh, digestive bitters, and there's lots of different versions of them. And I know some people do HCL caps, other people prescribe apple cider vinegar. There's so many ways to increase the acidic contents of the gut. But I think digestive bitters I've seen are number one. And particularly when a person is exposing themselves to foods that that they're sensitive to or that they're intolerant of, the digestive bitters can kind of bring that pH down and optimize the gut, optimize the pH. There's a whole series and cascade of hormones that are also activated in the gut by the proper pH. And a lot of people don't really talk about this. We talk a lot about the gut-brain axis. We talk a lot about pathogenic bacteria and so on, but not as much as spoken about the pH of the gut and maintaining an optimal pH. Now, the standard American diet or the SAD diet, SAD diet, that will bring the pH up significantly and that'll throw everything off. Nutrients will not be absorbed. Inflammation will run rampant. A person will become deficient. And then what's very interesting as well is that lower esophageal sphincter will relax and a person will most likely end up with heartburn, which is, I think, probably 12 or 13 million people, last I checked, have heartburn in the United States. And if you go to you know Costco, I mean, you see boxes of Meprazole or Prilosec that are just sold over the counter now. It's a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical. And a lot of this can be nipped in the bud. It can be prevented from occurring just with keeping the gut optimal. Mm, I love that. I had a yoga client slash patient a while ago, many years back. She was vegetarian, but she was complaining about a lot of inflammation. And she was also a little bit overweight. And I said, well, and she asked me, I mean, I don't go in there because again, I'm not a doctor, but she said, you know, what do you think? And I said, you know, if you got rid of dairy, which I know is very prominent in your culture, but if you could get rid of it and just see how you respond, it's very high in acidity. And she did. And after four days, she texted me and said, I had no idea. It was so habitual. But she said, I was popping those, whatever the pills are you're talking about, like Pepto-Bismol or whatever. She said, I just literally was popping them like candy. They were in my car. They were by my bedside table. It was just so much of a habit. She said, it's the first time, Laura, and it was only four days. Like I didn't feel like I needed to take it. And sometimes the answer is so simple and yet it really gets into habit and eating as a whole, (laughs) I don't know. So how much of it do you get into eating? I I think people could almost take like a supplemental prescription or protocol even more than saying, hey, you need, try and eliminate meat and dairy. Like how much of that do you bring into the discussion? Yeah. So that's actually where I start. I mean, that's the most important thing is what we're putting into our bodies and as you know, there's so many different tests. There's so many different food allergy panels and so on. Here's the thing. When you do like a $400 or $500 food allergy blood test and they, you know, the doctor draws a tube or two of blood, I, I do it sometimes. The thing is, is that every time we eat something, our immune system is tagging it with an antibody. So my favorite food is dairy, then I'm going to have more antibodies or IgG antibodies to dairy in my blood, just from a scientific perspective, than somebody who doesn't eat as much dairy as me. And so if you run the test on me, most likely I'm going to have a higher IgG blood titer or amount to that particular food, dairy in this case. And then the doctor is going to say, you know, Ben, you've got a food allergy to dairy. And correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Just because 
I have a high IgG blood titer to dairy doesn't mean that's causing my inflammation. And so I think that in functional medicine, there's way too much overdiagnosis and there's a lot of money spent on these tests that are in sometimes making people's lives more difficult than they need to be. I mean, how common is it to have a colleague come back and say, oh, the doctor told me to take out you know, gluten, dairy, soy, egg, pretty much everything, all of their favorite foods. And how long can a person realistically do that? Only for maybe a week or two or even a few days, if at all. Then they just throw it all out and they go back to eating all the things they were eating before. So I don't necessarily do that. I know that there can be some good in it and food allergy testing certainly can help in the short term. But for me, the jury is out. Just from a scientific perspective, if my immune system is tagging everything, and then so there's more tags because I eat more of these foods, then why are we calling that a sensitivity? Why are we calling that an allergy? Mm. So what would you call it? Just not natural to the human body? (laughs) I would say the immune system's doing what it's supposed to do. And I can actually predict in many cases what a person's going to come back as. It basically tells me what they're eating. It doesn't tell me anything about necessarily about pathology. Right. At least that's from all the research I've read. And now I, I know a lot of people would disagree with me, but I think that the jury's still out. I don't think we fully understand IgG food allergy testing. So if you were to talk about food with somebody, how are you predicting if it has a positive influence? Really, is it a subjective report? I'm trained in an old naturopathic evaluation that's over a hundred years old. And you can look it up. It's called the Carroll Food Intolerance Method. And it was founded in Spokane, Washington in the 1920s. And it does involve taking a blood spot. So I take a blood spot from my patient, and then I'm trained in this modality, a device that I'm able to run evaluations with. And it's not a CLIA-waved lab. However, it is something that only naturopathic physicians are allowed to do. So there are no chiropractors or nutritionists or anyone else in the world that's allowed to run this evaluation. There's probably only a few hundreds that run it. And for me, it's absolutely essential because it identifies the one or two foods that a person cannot digest. Mm. And so once we remove those one or two foods, usually whatever they've got going on improves or gets better or goes away. And so I see miracle after miracle after miracle occurring in my practice. I credit much of it to running this evaluation and then helping my patients to work through it and to experiment with it and then to see what works and what doesn't. Now, are there hundreds in that list of the two or are there kind of a common thread that you see of like, are there, what what are some of those Yeah. So Dr. Carroll, who's an incredibly famous doctor in the 1920s, he uh, found that there were all these food groups and he experimented for probably a couple decades with it. And so everything's classified into food groups. So you've got dairy, you've got egg, you've got soy, you've got potato, you've got fruit, you've got cane sugar, you've got honey, and there's maybe 15 or 20 different food groups. And then there are also combinations. So it actually tests different of the food groups together when they're combined. So like, for example, cane sugar when combined with fruit or dairy when combined with any form of grain. And what he found was that this will take care of 99% of food intolerances in human beings. And so it's actually a very elegant evaluation. You're not looking at hundreds and hundreds of things. You're more looking at food groups. So I'm not testing macadamia nuts or just avocado 
or just barley necessarily. I'll be testing, I mean, I can if I want to, but I'll be testing gluten as a group, which would be several different types of grain, or I'll be testing grain as a group, which is all grains, which includes sesame, corn, millet, you name it. Or I'll test dairy, which includes goat, camel, cow, any form of butter, any form of milk from any animal. So that's actually a food group. And we do find that that's the number one. I mean, as you and I have already talked about dairy, probably 50 to 60% of people that I test and that I say test, but I should say that I evaluate, have a dairy intolerance. But what's really cool is that they don't have another one. It's not like, oh, you've got a a dairy and a gluten and a soy and an egg. It's never that way. It's always just one or two. And what I find, what we find, and I'm in a, a lineage of doctors doing this, so I'm not the only one. What we find is that when people remove their food intolerance, then their food sensitivities and their food allergies go away. So it's incredible. So like a lot of times a patient will come to me, they think they they have an egg sensitivity. They've had it their whole life. They can't eat eggs because every time they eat eggs, they get all bloated and, and so on. And then we identify that they actually have a dairy intolerance. So they remove dairy and they've tried that before maybe in their past, but I inform them about all the things that dairy are in. For example, calcium supplements are usually made from dairy. People don't know that. Dairy is usually in all charcuterie. So any form of salami is usually preserved with a little lactoferrin. People don't know that. Most frozen seafood at Trader Joe's is flash preserved with dairy. Lactoferrin is used to prevent it from getting E. coli. People don't know that when they go and buy wild-caught salmon frozen from Trader Joe's, that they're actually getting a little bit of dairy. It's not on the label. And so when I educate my patients about this and they completely get dairy out of their diet if they have a dairy intolerance, then a lot of times all of these other foods, including gluten, that they thought were problems or that were problems, after a few weeks, they're able to eat those foods again for the first time in their lives. And they are so happy. They can't believe it. This is kind of the very uh, crux and basis of my practice, I would say, is running this food intolerance evaluation. Wow. Well, we could talk about that forever, but I want to move into your book. So can you talk about the book, the title of it, what does it mean? And then maybe you can talk about like why you decided to write it. (laughs) Sure. So my book is called The Serpent and the Butterfly, The Seven Laws of Healing. And it's a very small book. A person can read it in like an hour and a half. It's a tiny little book, sort of like the four agreements or the seven spiritual laws of success or any of these little little tiny books that a person can read that are, that are very loved. What and I really saw the need for, Lara, was a tiny book that explains exactly what we're doing using the laws of healing. And these laws of healing aren't just naturopathic. They're used in functional medicine. They're used in alternative medicine. They're used in chiropractic. They've been used throughout the world for centuries. They're used in Ayurvedic medicine, in Chinese medicine. And they're known by different names. And so I found that there were only seven laws. And I thought, you know, there has to be a book on this, laying it out, explaining how to apply them and explaining the evidence behind them and how we can literally help the body heal by working with the body as opposed to working against it. So that's really what the book is. And what's the title? Like, what does that title mean? Yeah, so the serpent, obviously being the most common symbol of healing, we see it on the caduceus or the staff where you've got a couple of serpents encircling us. It's literally the symbol of modern medicine all throughout the world. 
And also the snake or serpent, it sheds its skin to be reborn anew in mythology, just like a dragon or any snake. And so snakes were revered all throughout different cultures for being symbols of the mysteries of life and death and so on. Of course, they were also a symbol of evil, according to, to some. The serpent and the butterfly, the butterfly also being a symbol of healing and transformation as the, the butterfly goes through the different stages through the metamorphosis. So moving from the, from the caterpillar all the way to the butterfly, that is sort of a great metaphor for healing. And what's really interesting, Laura, is that the word butterfly in Greek is psyche. So the word psyche, which we get psychology from, also means soul. It means soul and it means butterfly. So mm. the ancient Greek butterfly and soul is psyche. So I'm kind of basically playing with images here. And that's kind of where it comes from. I love that. And it seems like at its essence, it's about transformation and about the power that we have within us. I think that this is, again, what I speak to a lot in movement is that movement really begets movement of all kinds, like moving out of stagnancy, moving out of fear, moving out of anger, moving out of any kind of negative of the imbalance. And it's some, again, it's sometimes so simple, people don't realize it. Like the power is in our hands. We can change the way we feel in a matter of minutes. And so I really love that theme of both the butterfly and the serpent of these being able to shed the skin of also being able to grow and expand. And so this book sounds like it's for anyone who is willing and wanting this experience of transformation. It really is. And the book is incredibly simple. It's very practical and it's fun. It's lighthearted. And it's also everything. I mean, there's hundreds of studies cited in it. Everything I say, I try to back up with scientific studies. As much yeah, as when I, yes, the re, I, I loved looking at it, and I glimpsed through it and read some parts. And it, like you said, it is so digestible. And I do love that you balance evidence based with just the lightness of it. And I especially loved how at the end of each chapter you have these exercises. Can you talk a little bit about these exercises and how you came up with these? I really wanted to just give people a few simple, you know, exercises they can do to implement the laws right away. And for example, I've got the law of disease, which I think is chapter two. And uh, the law of disease says that all disease is caused by three things in the body. Disease being basically an imbalance of a particular organ system or, or what have you in the body. And these three things are toxicity, deficiency, and not enough energy. And so I give people some exercises about how to just increase their, get more nutrients into their body, as well as lower toxicity in their body. And I mean, you're a yoga teacher, you know all about that. There's so many ways to just sweat and move toxins out. And every culture throughout the world has, for all the time, revered hydrotherapy. You know, there's the Turkish baths and there's the Alaskans, um, you know, would have their tents where they would steam in the tents. And there's the Russian banya and there's the, the Native American uh, sweat lodges. And I mean, if you just look, there's the German, uh, you know, hydrotherapy as well. And so I give people some hydrotherapy exercises they can do. And it's amazing. It's simple things, but they can literally help us. And then we can move in the direction of health. Interesting when you say hydrotherapy, I'm curious about what are your thoughts on like ice baths? 
Do you have any opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Is that just a trend or is there any science behind it? (laughs) uh, Well, there definitely is. And I know Wim Hof is the one who's kind of propagating that. And he's incredible if you follow him. It certainly can be taken to an extreme. But the thing is, is this actually gets into one of the laws of healing. And it's, I believe it's chapter five. It's the law of compensation. And we don't really talk about this very much in medical school, but the law of compensation says that everything we do to the body, for example, if I take a drug, it's going to have a primary effect. For example, if I take Tylenol, it's going to lower inflammation in my body. It's going to inhibit the uh, prostaglandin synthesis, and it's going to cause inflammation to go down. Maybe a fever will go down if I'm febrile. But there's also going to be a secondary effect downstream that happens that's going to be in the opposite direction of the initial effect. And so sometimes we see that people who are kind of battling through a cold or a fever, they'll actually re-spike a fever maybe a couple hours later or maybe five hours later after taking their Tylenol. Let's say they take two 500 milligram tabs, which is the recommended dose. Then on on the bottle, it says take a couple more, you know, five or six hours later. Well, there's actually a reason for that because oftentimes the effects will wear off and the body will also be responding. And you had mentioned homeostasis earlier on. There's this homeostatic mechanism in the body. And it's a lot like if you're a sailor, you know, trying to sail and kind of the sailboat is tipping into different sides. It's called tacking and jiving. And basically one is trying to steer the course toward a certain area. And health is a lot like that. And we can use this law of compensation to steer in the direction of health. And this kind of ties back to hydrotherapy. So you ask about the ice bath. You know how like when you get in an ice bath or you go out into the snow and maybe you expose yourself to a lot of cold, how just a couple minutes later, you start to get kind of hot. Your body starts to heat up and maybe you get a little itchy and you're like, wow, I'm not cold anymore. (sighs) right? That's the law of compensation. That's the body responding to the initial action of the ice with a much more potent and much more powerful secondary reaction. And so we can use this knowledge to move in the direction of health. So for example, getting back into that a little bit, when you apply ice, let's say you sprain your ankle, you play basketball, you sprain your ankle, you put an ice pack on your ankle. What that does is it vasoconstricts, it tightens up the vasculature of the blood vessels in the ankle, which drives the blood into the uh, recesses of the ankle. It kind of drives it away from the surface. But if you leave that ice pack on too long, it'll actually start to do the opposite. It'll start to hurt again. It'll start to swell again because the body is saying, hey, we're compensating for this ice that you're putting on here. We're going to actually move in the opposite direction because we want to make sure you don't cause nerve damage. We want to make sure you don't damage our blood vessels. This is the law of compensation. And we see it with every drug we take. And, And so if we know the side effects of a drug, which are usually the compensatory ways that our bodies are uh, dealing with the actions of the drug, then we can actually use that knowledge to get better or to predict what's going to happen. And so this kind of gets into this book. This book is exceedingly practical because it explains these laws. It explains how they work using scientific studies. And then it gives examples. And then it also gives ways to apply these laws to get better. Wow. There's so many questions I have for you. (laughs) I mean, One, okay, in that regard, when you're talking about this secondary effect, because this is really important, I think so many people do have 
daily medicine they're taking. So it could be in the form of prescription, like ADHD. That's like all over the place. I'd love to know what the secondary effect of those drugs are. Or it could be in the form of more plant-based medicine, like in the form of marijuana. And I'd love to know if there's a second, well, it sounds like there would be like some kind of secondary effect of that. Like, so you've got two different ones, more is more like kind of stimulating and more is one that is, can, I guess, can be stimulating, but for a lot of people is more calming. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. There isn't a lot of money in this and these kinds of things are suppressed by big pharma because who wants to spend millions of dollars to see the long-term effects of Benadryl? But if you actually go to PubMed, and I do, I, I love to read studies, there are a lot of studies on like the effects of Benadryl and how years down the road, it actually, it's associated with dementia. Now, we know that if you take Benadryl, that people often feel drowsy. That's kind of a more immediate effect, or it can take place a few hours after taking some Benadryl or even the next day. But dementia is actually a, a long-term side effect or it's an association. And there's a significant association. With that. Another one would be we talked about the Prilosec or the Omeprazole or the proton pump inhibitors, which are over the counter. Those are supposed to turn off stomach acid uh, so that we don't get heartburn, but they also deplete magnesium and calcium. And so osteoporosis and fractures are a long term secondary effect of taking proton pump inhibitors for more than 10 years. You can go to PubMed, you can look this up. I'm not making this up. It's in the research. And you basically can go and look at the side effects of any drug. And then you can go look at the research and the associations and you can start to predict these things. And you can also just look at the physiology, look at the mechanism of action of these drugs. What are they doing in the body? And this would actually explain why a lot of people get tired after drinking coffee. They get this initial heightened energy from the caffeine, but then maybe later in the day they crash. That's the secondary effect. That's the law of compensation. And then they need to have another shot of espresso. So, uh oh, we're in trouble here. <laughs> yeah, I'm drinking mine right so what, here. What does someone like that do? <laughs> Somebody thinking <laughs> myself. I mean, I actually don't have coffee in the afternoon and I love coffee. And I've kind of recognized, like, for me, it's such a behavioral, amazing, like, I love the taste of it. it I associate it with reading the morning. Well, this will kind of lead me into my, like, kind of final summarization. Cause again, I could, I could really pick your brain on a lot of stuff. So something like that, what are some of the things that you would say everyone should do every day? Like five things. And if they are coffee drinkers, like, is there an alternative or if they drink coffee, how can they balance it out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the five things, I mean, the first one would be exercise or yoga, some kind of movement, right? For 20 yeah. or 30 minutes. Uh, number two, I would say some form of hydrotherapy whether you like to soak in a hot tub or take a hot shower and then expose oneself to cold air, just some form of hydrotherapy is great. Number three, avoid your food intolerances. If you know that there's a certain food that just wrecks you, find out from a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor if that's for sure, but don't eat that food. Lower it, limit it. That's huge. And then number four would be get a good sleep. Try to do sleep hygiene, use blackout curtains, put your phone in airplane mode when you leave it at your bedside table at night. And then number five, I don't know. What do you think number five should be? <laughs> uh, number five is probably something to do with breathing or connecting with people in some way. You know, Perfect. that would kind of round out the whole system, I think. Um, we're, I we're basically that. on the same, yeah, same wavelength there. Well, this was such a treat. I think 
people are going to have a lot of questions for you. So where can they find out more about you and purchase your book and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So you can go to drreebs.com. Uh, that's D-R-R-E-B as in boy, S as in Sam.com. And I am doing a lot of telehealth these days, Laura. So if anyone wants to just inquire about a telehealth appointment with me, I'd love to talk with them, see them. And we can often do it through insurance as well, even from state to state, which is unusual during COVID, that I can actually see, doc- see people in other states using their insurance. And then you can find my book on Amazon, uh, on Barnes & Noble. Yeah, it's a delightful book. I'm really excited to dive deeper into it. Again, I just looked through it and I just was like, wow, this is my person. I loved it. So thank you, Ben, for taking the time and coming on here. And I think everybody is just going to get such a kick out of you. So watch out. They can contact you through your website. Is that how they can make an appointment? It's perfect. Okay, terrific. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Laura. And thank you out there. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.